Yeah, that's right. Not everything is doom and gloom in this whole esophagus acid story. You can stretch things and make people feel a whole lot better. And then I guess on the flip side, sometimes people will have such a narrow esophagus, add on a big old steak, and then they come in in the middle of the night and Porsche and I have to run in and, and get that food out so that people aren't gagging on their secretions. So, And it's always in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's always in the middle of the night and it's only one bite. Oh. Yes, one bite, <laughs> <laughs> one bite. <laughs> um, I love Mexican food. However, when you're talking GERD, the saucy, fatty, and citrus-rich foods are a recipe for acid reflux. This week at Maximal Being Fitness, Nutrition, and Gut Health, Dr. Pora Shah joins Dr. Mock, me, to discuss reflux, diagnosis, medical, and holistic therapy. Do us a favor, Maximal Beings, and leave us a comment or review. Hit the subscribe button and let your friends and family know so that we can get the word out. You cannot supplement your way to health, but there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease, gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night and iHerb is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the ZenWise Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528, and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. Welcome to Maximal Being, a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and RN Graham. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here with Maximal Being Fitness, Nutrition, and Gut Health. Joining me today is the acid-blocking ninja, Porish Shah. As always, I am Doc Mock. I'm a therapeutic endoscopist here in Cleveland, Ohio. That's a GI doctor that specializes in cancer. I also do a lot with nutrition and gut health on the functional medicine side of things. And if you're feeling that burning after eating those wings, after eating that big spaghetti meal, if you're lying down, you wake up at night with that chest burning, you may be experiencing a condition called acid reflux disease. If you read our literature, there's a lot regarding acid blocking therapy. You look on the news, it causes dementia and stroke and heart attack. And on the functional side of things, blocking acid is evil, but is it? And we're here to get to the bottom of things. So I'm going to turn it over to Porisha, who is a dear friend of mine and a practicing gastroenterologist out on the western part of the country. Porisha. Thanks, Doc Mock. Nice to see you. Nice to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Pleasure's mine. So, uh, yeah, as, as Doc Mock said, we've known each other for quite some time. We did our training together uh, back at Cooper Hospital in New Jersey. Um, I'm originally from the East Coast as well, so uh, we had a lot in common with that. Um, I did, I'm did. i from uh, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, which is near Scranton for, for those uh, office fans out there. 
Um, and then I did my med school and residency at Jefferson in Philadelphia and then fellowship with, uh, with, uh, Doc Mock at Cooper, as I mentioned earlier. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. And so where are you practicing now? And, and what so is I'm your in practice? Su- Southern California right now. Um, so in a group practice with a, with a few other gastroenterologists and uh, just doing general GI right now. Uh, a lot of the, the bread and butter uh, endoscopies, colonoscopies, abdominal pain, and of course, a lot of uh, acid reflux like we're going to talk about today. Wonderful. So um, for those of you out there that have experienced symptoms of acid reflux disease, I'm sure you're aware of what we term the typical symptoms. So that is burning in the chest, which is uh, technically called pyrosis, or you can have regurgitation of contents from the stomach that come back into the esophagus. Sometimes you taste it in your mouth. Um, Other people will actually get chest pain. And that's from the spasming of the esophagus, which is a long tube in the chest. But there's a lot of you that may not know that other symptoms you're experiencing outside of the GI tract can be related to reflux. Things like asthma, things like dental problems. Um, So even chronic allergies or sinusitis can be related to acid reflux disease. So it's hard to, to sort all this out. And we end up seeing a lot of patients, both from lung doctors and ear, nose, and throat doctors for acid reflux disease in order to hash out whether or not the symptoms are from high acid or not. So, uh, Porish, how do you how do you approach a patient that comes in and says, hey, I have one of these symptoms. Doc, help me out. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so of course, the, the most important thing that we always do is to discuss the symptoms, do the history, do the physical exam if necessary. Um, so somebody that comes in with acid reflux, uh, you know, you, you ask them to describe the symptoms. Is it more the burning in the chest? Is it more uh, of a discomfort feeling, a pressure type of feeling? Do they actually feel uh, a acidic type of taste or, or a sour taste in the back of the mouth? Do they have some of these red flag symptoms as well, such as dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing? Have they had symptoms for quite a long time and now they're starting to lose weight as a result of it? Um, Are they having any severe pain in addition to the burning in the chest? Are they having chest tightness? Things to really uh, determine if specifically this is acid reflux, uh, like the typical symptoms, as you mentioned, or is this an atypical presentation, or is this maybe something that's occurring in the chest and is not related to the esophagus or acid reflux or the GI tract at all. Yeah, I I think that you hit on a really um, good batch of interesting points. And the first is that things that are happening in the chest, if you're especially a woman that has chest discomfort, chest pain, make sure that you're not having coronary artery disease or heart disease. We talked to Dr. Ankur Kalara on a different podcast about coronary artery disease, but in women especially, heart disease can mimic as GI dysfunction, even indigestion. So please make sure that you talk to your doctor about that. And then you mentioned something about the red flag symptoms and swallowing problems. When somebody has one of those types of red flag symptoms, like foods getting stuck, they're losing weight, they have blood in the stool, or they have a family history of cancer uh, in the esophagus or stomach, what, what, what's your next step for those people, Dr. Shah? Okay. So if, if someone does come in with any of those red flag symptoms, uh, of course, the first thing that we want to do is put them on a medication like a PPI, such as omeprazole, pantoprazole, something like that. Take 
care of the uh, acute symptoms. Again. Um, but of course, we want an oscopy test, uh, and that's a test where we take a direct look at. Ah, it's gone again. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. All right, how's it now? Is it better? It's better now. Okay. Do you have like a direct right. plug-in? Uh, or? I don't. We only have laptops here. Oh, They're okay. all newer. Um, if it, if it gets bad, I'll reset my wireless again and see okay. if that helps. Okay. Cool. All right. So, uh, so if somebody does come in with, with any of these red flag symptoms, of course, the first thing that we want to do is treat the acute symptoms. And we can do that with uh, something like uh, a PPI. Uh, those kind of medications are like omeprazole, pantoprazole, things like that. And they work pretty well. Um, but of course, we want to look more deeply into the symptoms that are going, uh, the, the concerning symptoms. So we do that with an endoscopy test where we take a direct look at not only the esophagus, but also the uh, stomach and part of the small intestine as well. And sometimes with uh, the red flag symptoms, Symptoms, the thing that we would be most concerned about is some kind of cancer uh, that could be causing those those problems. And, and the endoscopy test will allow us to look directly for those cancers. Yeah, absolutely. And in my world, you know, it, it's really interesting when you do see the precancerous lesions, what we term Barrett's esophagus, which is basically your body has had acid in the esophagus for years, and it's trying to fix the acid problem by counteracting it with an alkaline environment. And the cells in the body that make an alkaline environment live in the small intestine. So those small intestinal cells like migrate into the esophagus and start making the alkaline pH, which fixes the acid reflux problem. So bingo, patient feels better. But the problem with that is it is a precancerous condition. And so add on 10 years of genetic mutations going on in that esophagus and the person feeling fine and boom, there's a cancer. And, and Porsche last week, I actually diagnosed a 41 year old woman with exactly that history. And there it is like stage three esophageal cancer. All right. So yeah. So when we're doing the endoscopy test, of course, we you know there's uh, precancerous conditions like Barrett's esophagus, as uh, as Doc Mock had mentioned. Uh, and one of the interesting things about that is that sometimes people can have acid reflux symptoms for a period of time, and then those symptoms can actually go away. And that can be caused by having severe damage in the esophagus to the point where some of the nerve endings are actually damaged, and that constant acid reflux is no longer felt. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, people think, okay, well, now I don't have any more symptoms. I'm not going to take any more medications or I'm not going to start any medications. And that's really where uh, some of the problems can arise. Uh, oftentimes, when I have patients that, that uh, describe dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, um, when you first ask them, do you have any acid reflux symptoms? A lot of them say, actually, no, I don't have any symptoms. But if you dig a little deeper and say, in the past, maybe five, 10 years ago, have you had severe acid reflux symptoms? A lot of them will say, you know, I actually have. And then a few years ago, that's, that went away. And so I haven't been taking anything. And those patients may have more concerning findings like cancers or even more uh, benign findings like strictures or narrowings or things that thankfully we can fix during an endoscopy. Yeah, that's right. Not everything is doom and gloom in this whole esophagus acid story. You can stretch things and make people feel a whole lot better. And then I guess on the flip side, sometimes people will have such a narrow esophagus, add on a big old steak, and then they come in in the middle of the night and Porsche and I have to run in and, and get that food out so that people aren't gagging on their secretions. So, yes. And it's always in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's always in the middle of the night and it's only one bite. 
Oh. Yes, one bite. <laughs> <laughs> one bite. <laughs> um, so you touched on the, the acid-lowering medicine. So, I mean, we're trying to block acid because blocking acid in the case of Barrett's is actually chemopreventative, right? It prevents cancer and it can prevent damaging side effects like narrowings or strictures or damage to the, the nerve endings or asthma or scar tissue in the lungs. Um, but if you look at the functional medicine literature, they say that acid is good. So is acid bad or is acid good? Well, I, I think like anything in life, there's, there's of course, a balance. Uh, and we do need acid in our stomachs for, for many different things, uh, primarily digesting foods, also killing bacteria. Uh, and, and there's a lot of other um, proteins and enzymes and compounds that uh, get activated by acid as well. So lots of things to di- uh, lots of compounds in our body to digest proteins, carbohydrates, fats, all the other things that we uh, eat are activated by those acids. So we do need some acid in our stomach. Um, having no acid at all can cause a lot of problems uh, as well. Um, but uh, certainly we do need acid in there. So acid in and of itself, of course, is not a bad thing. An excess or an overproduction of that to the point where it's causing symptoms, uh, that's when we need to intervene sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of like the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, right? It's like you just got to have that sweet spot of acid. Exactly. Um, and I think that acid high-low gets kind of demonized depending on which you know camp you have your feet in. But I have my feet in both camps, right? So I realize, just like you do, that you know, like there is that middle ground. Um, what are some of the things that you start to talk to people about? in order to assist them in blocking their acid apart from medications. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of different things that we can do aside from medications. Most of those things are what we call lifestyle changes. Um, so, you know, unfortunately with, with the Western diet, um, a lot of people are overweight. And I think in, in overweight patients or obese patients, we see a significant amount of acid reflux for a number of different reasons. Um, partly it's the foods that we're eating, uh, you know, the high calorie, high fat, high carbohydrate food, uh, junk foods, fast foods, things like that. In general, a lot of those can cause acid reflux. So of course we try to try to limit those and eat healthier whole grain, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, uh, fresh foods in general, oftentimes will fill you up more and cause less acid reflux. Uh, and then on top of that, the obesity itself. So being overweight, um, uh, can cause a lot of strain on the esophagus, a lot of strain on the diaphragm muscle itself, which is part of the lower esophageal sphincter or the sphincter muscle between the esophagus and the stomach. And the pressure of all of the fat as well can push uh, stomach contents um, upwards back up through the lower esophageal sphincter into the esophagus, into the back of the throat or mouth and cause a lot of those symptoms. So those are a couple things that we try to avoid is eating healthier, um, losing weight, Exercising can always help as well. Um, in addition, stress can cause acid. You know, it doesn't cause acid to the point of uh, of causing cancers or ulcers necessarily, which is sometimes a common misconception. But it does increase the acid content in the stomach, and in combination with some of those other factors, can cause symptoms. So, anything that can decrease stress uh, can certainly help. Some people, for some people, that may be exercising. For some people, that may be reading, watching a movie. Uh, but meditation and things like that can help a lot as well. Yeah, um, I I absolutely um, agree with you there that, you know, we've talked in a a prior podcast about the whole brain gut access, and there is a direct link between your enteric nervous system, your 
your gut's own brain and the nervous system up above. And so if you have dysfunctions in dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, those same dysfunctions will result in dysfunctions in your enteric nervous system that can absolutely precipitate acid reflux disease. The, the area, the acid barrier that you have called the lower esophageal sphincter is a very complex mechanism. And it involves your diaphragm, like you discussed, but it also has hormonal inputs. And some of those hormonal inputs are the same ones up top, including the vagus nerve, right? The vagus nerve is this nerve that kind of starts at your brain and receives signals from the gut. Like if you ever felt butterflies in your stomach, that's usually triggering the vagus nerve. And so there's things that you can do, actually relaxation techniques to relax the vagus nerve and kind of reprogram your acid pumps that way. Um, now, I always tell my patients with obesity, it's kind of like uh, for people that have kids, like you're lying on, on the floor, you know, watching TV and your kid jumps on your, your stomach or, you know, you like put a bowling ball on your stomach. Obviously, you're going to get acid reflux disease. And so people that are obese with that extra weight, the pressure in their belly builds up and that acid blocking mechanism that has to get your steak down, but not liquid up just can't overcome that difference. Um, you mentioned exercise. What exercises specifically have you had success in your clinical practice with, with your patients or, um, you know, with, with colleagues? Sure. Yeah. And, and it's a great question. I think part of it depends on what your, all, uh, your overall status is in terms of, do you like to exercise already? Uh, what's your activity level in general? Most people that we see, uh, often don't have time to exercise or are not already, uh, uh, implementing some kind of workout program in their day. So the thing that I tell most people is, is walking. Um, I think walking helps a lot in general. It starts to slowly build, um, some endurance in terms of, of muscles. Um, and oftentimes it's also very relaxing. It's almost meditative in its own way. Um, so I think that's a great start. Um, and then certainly in, uh, implementing some weight training, uh, down the road can help as well. I think there's some studies that have shown that even, even a few pounds, a few days a week, uh, light lifting can help uh, uh, patients significantly. So, and then to on top of that, building muscle um, is good for weight loss in general because you burn a lot more calories uh, at baseline. Your your basal metabolic rate, your your basal metabolism increases significantly, even with small increases in in muscle mass. Yeah, and for the for the listeners out there, you know, if you're listening to this and you can't see Dr. Shah. This man is a powerful doctor. He can throw down in the weight room. I have seen it myself. The man knows what he's doing. Um, for me personally, I had terrible acid reflux disease when I was a resident. And I don't know if it was like a combination of stress, if it was like eating crappy food because you're staying up all night and you know sleeping during the day, your cortisol is high, your stress hormones are high or what. But for me, you know, when we were in training, I was running a lot, right? And I was doing yoga. And I didn't find that those things helped at all with my acid reflux disease. But it wasn't until I got back to the weight room that I really fixed the acid reflux problem. Um, and you're right, there are some studies that have evaluated that before, um, where they've randomized patients to a weight training regimen, or other forms of exercise. And they've found that weight training is actually the best. And I always recommend in particular core strengthening exercises for my patients. Now, if you lift and you don't breathe properly through your lifts, I'm sure that can do the opposite. 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Breathing, breathing of course is important uh, on a daily basis, but certainly also when you're exercising. Um, yeah. It, and it really does, you know, it really does make a big difference um, uh, with the acid reflux. And then one thing we haven't mentioned also is just um, when making sure you're not eating, of course, too soon before you work out um, because that food doesn't get pass through your uh, stomach for at least, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, if it's a liquid, maybe even two hours. But certainly if you're eating any solid foods before you work out, that food is going to sit there uh, and cause more acid reflux, whether you walk or run or lift. So certainly leave a few hours from when you eat to, to when you work out. Um, and that's a good, it's a good uh, uh, lesson in general is, uh, you know, anytime you eat, First of all, small meals, you know, multiple small meals throughout the day may help as well to decrease some of that acid. And then certainly not laying down, uh, not exercising immediately after that, at least for a few hours, let that food digest properly and pass through before you do other things. So just another thing that we hadn't mentioned yet. Do you personally eat before working out or do you do that as well? Do you wait a few hours and exercise fasted? I try to, I try to not, not fully fasted, but I in an ideal scenario, my ideal workout time would probably be about 3 p.m. So I'd have a good breakfast, maybe a you know a mid-morning snack, have a, a nice lunch at noon or so, leave two to three hours, and then work out. I think I would be at my best at that point. Um, if you know that doesn't always work out, of course, with work and things like that. So oftentimes I'm working out closer to 5:36. So I don't like eating dinner before working out. So what I might do is if I plan ahead and I'm good about it, I might have a protein bar or a protein shake before I leave work so that by the time I get home and I'm ready to work out, at least an hour has passed, half an hour to an hour. And especially with a protein shake, you know, the liquid goes down fairly quickly and I don't really feel too much, but sometimes I certainly do still feel a little bit of that acid reflux and and you just kind of have to deal with it. Um, Or, you know, if I don't plan ahead, then I do have a protein shake sometimes while I'm working out, maybe a little bit before and then while I'm working out. And that tends not to give me as much acid reflux, um, but still gives me some energy to, to work out. So ideally I do try as much as I can to avoid it. Um, you know, we have lives, we work, we're busy. It doesn't always work out that way, but whatever we can do to, to do that, to, to follow those lessons, it may help. Yeah. I, I tend to do like a tiny bit of carbs, like a little apple, not like the big grocery store apples, but like our local apples here, right. normal sized apple, you know, I'll, do, I'll eat that on my way home from work before I work out. And it's interesting you say two o'clock is best or two to three o'clock because that is the time of day when our testosterone levels are actually highest on average. And so many men and women will will both report that their ideal exercise time is midday. And it's because our testosterone is highest at that time. So we have that extra oomph. I didn't um, know that. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, Now you mentioned, you know, generally just eating clean, eating real food, but are there specific food triggers that can worsen the acid situation in your stomach? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think this is one of those things where uh, there certainly are some foods that uh, can cause problems for everybody. And there's some foods that may cause more problems for particular people. So I always, the first thing I always tell people is to keep a food diary, um, write down what you eat, what you're doing during that time, when you're working out, when you're having symptoms, things like that, and see if there's particular foods that you notice that trigger problems for you, because it may be different for you. But in general, there are certainly certain foods, um, acidic foods, citrus fruits, um, uh, any sour things that can certainly do it. Spicy foods, of course, can do it. Fried, greasy, fatty, oily foods can certainly do it as well. Uh, And then certain 
other things like stimulant type of things like caffeine can do it. And then, you know, things that we all enjoy, chocolate, unfortunately, can do it sometimes as well. And certain mints can do that as well. So there are a number of different things that we sort of in general tell people to avoid. Uh, uh, but also on top of that, you know, those things may not bother everybody. That's just common things that we see. So it's the, the important thing is to always look at you, yourself, your daily routine, the foods you're eating, the things that you're doing, and, and try to figure out what works best for you individually as well. Yeah. I, I always tell patients to think about like Mexican food. And then for dessert, you're having mint chocolate chip ice cream. Cause it's like fatty, you get the peppermint in there, you have chocolate, like coffee and, and Mexican food is delicious, but like it yep. is the ultimate acid burn because it's spicy yep. and fatty and tomato. Um, now on the flip side. So if dietary therapies don't work, we can deploy the good old fashioned proton pump inhibitor or PPI. And what a PPI does is you have these little acid factories that sit in your stomach. You put the food in there and they start getting to work by making acid to help you digest in particular protein in your diet. There's an older class of medications, which is slowly kind of going away, which is not as good as PPIs. And that's uh, blocking the histamine receptors in your stomach, but you still have other ways to stimulate that acid pump with a hormone called gastrin. And then also acetylcholine, which is made by the vagus nerve, right? That's your uh, rest and digest, not your fight and flight system. Um, but if you turn on most major media centers and, and search PPI on, on their database, they're going to show you studies that show all of these terrible things. And so, Porish, how do you counsel your patients when they're coming to you on one of these medicines for a long time and they're scared about these, these side effects? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, of course, you know, you always want to uh, address the, the issues that they bring up. Um, and I tell them, you know, PPIs have been around for quite some time. These studies are newer studies. Uh, oftentimes, they're not well done studies, unfortunately, uh, and they but they cause a sensation. They cause some kind of change in our thinking, and they get picked up by the media streams. And unfortunately, that gets blown out of proportion a little bit. And before we have time to really fully evaluate those studies or repeat a study or look into them more deeply this kind of stuff gets out into the world. So I always tell them, you know, it's certainly always something to look look at and, and pay attention to and say, you know, if your symptoms are mild and you're worried about trying uh, uh, the side effects that these medications potentially could have, then we have to look at it as a uh, risk-benefit ratio. If your symptoms are mild and you want to try coming off of that, we can certainly try taking you off the medication and see how you do, fully well knowing that if your symptoms come back, we, we may need to put you on the medication. Other people who have severe symptoms and have had those for a long time and are doing very well on these medications, I might say, you know, you can always try, but there's a high likelihood or a good like good chance that that your symptoms may come back and you may need to go on those medications. And then there's a third category of patients who I say, you know, you we've done an endoscopy for you. We've looked directly at the esophagus. There's damage, either Barrett's esophagus, uh, a stricture or narrowing or some other kind of damage in there that we've seen. And we know in those patients that coming off the medication is not going to be a good thing. So with those patients, I encourage strongly to, um, to continue the medication. Uh, and then people who are in between, I say, okay, maybe we can do an endoscopy test and see if there's damage. And you know, you may, they may have had one recently or never or some time ago, but we can see what type of damage is there. And then it helps you to make a decision whether it's something that they should be on that's worth maybe coming off of or saying, yeah, you know, your symptoms were mild. You weren't really having them too often. You've been on a PPI for a few months and your symptoms are better. Let's see what, you, what happens. So I think there's a few different categories of, of patients, but 
generally addressing uh, their, their questions, of course, is important, considering an endoscopy at that point, and then considering how severe their symptoms could become if you do decide to take them off the medication or if they decide they want to come off the medication. Yeah, that, that is so well put. Um, you know, uh, uh, people that have precancerous conditions in the esophagus don't come off of your medicine now. I mean, again, that is saving you from that small but present risk of cancer. Um, but for the rest of you, you know, you do have to just kind of weigh the risks of the medication with the benefits, albeit a lot of the risks that you've read about are not necessarily the risks that we as doctors are concerned about. Really, the only one that's been validated is an increased risk of an infection, which we talked about on our microbiome episode called C. diff. Other than that, the risk of cancer, of stroke, of heart attack, of dementia, it really has never been proven in good scientific study. It's like you do a database study and said who ate Mexican food and who got pancreas cancer and you look for like an association, but is it the Mexican food causing the pancreas cancer or is it because you smoke and you have a family history and you drink every day, right? It's, it's association, not causality. And so as a patient, you know, look at the quality of the study Right. Again, if it's one thing that we preach here at Maximal Being, it's don't look at the bro signs. Don't look at that face value headline. Look beneath the surface and know what the headline is saying. Um, now, on the flip side, when we there when we block the acid for too long in, in the functional medicine side of things, there's a concern for bacteria overgrowing. And also, you know, there's a concern about maldigestion, poor absorption of nutrients, which can lead to things like muscle loss and muscle wasting. And so again, just be, be realistic with what your goals are. Do you want to feel good or do you want to work on maybe the underlying causes of the acid reflux disease, which uh, Dr. Shah here has uh, so eloquently put uh, for all of you out there? Um, what are some holistic things that people can try if they really don't want to be on a PPI or if they have problems with PPI intolerance? Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, there are quite a number of patients who don't want to be on medications. And so I think always the first step is the, the lifestyle changes that we discussed earlier, losing weight, uh, exercising, you know, eating better, things like that. Um, but there are some other uh, uh, herbs and medications that are not traditional medications that can be used. So uh, some people have some improvement with apple cider vinegar, uh, and that's, you know, that's quite popular these days. Um, certainly really isn't going to cause any problems. So it certainly uh, can be worth trying if people want to try that. Uh, and then other things, uh, some some herbs like licorice can sometimes help. Um, there's things like slippery elm, marshmallow root, mastic gum, things like that. So there are other options um, that, that can be used uh, to, to help with the acid reflux. Yeah, I think that all of these things put together should give you a good armamentarium to either go into your doctor's office and know which bucket you fit into, whether you are somebody that's going to do better with traditional medicine therapy or more of a holistic approach. And if you want to know more, you know, you can contact us at team at maximalbeing.com and we're happy to work with you on more of a holistic sort of approach or work with your doctors to, to reach out to things further in terms of your reflux symptoms. So, uh, Porish, you want to just summarize what we've been talking about, and then we'll go for a brief commercial break. 
Sure. Yeah. So, so we've been talking about acid reflux, which is uh, reflux of the gastric contents from the stomach into the esophagus. Um, there can be typical symptoms like the burning, the chest pain, feeling like something is in there, and a lot of atypical symptoms as well, like asthma symptoms, coughs, chest pressure, things like that. So we always want to decide whether the symptoms are related to the esophagus and true gastric esophageal reflux disease or something else. Uh, and then we also talked about some of the red flag symptoms, weight loss, uh, bleeding, cancer history, smoking, severe pain, things like that. So the, the, the really concerning findings that we need to evaluate sooner rather than later. Um, we talked about some of the traditional medications, the best ones being PPIs like omeprazole, pantoprazole, things like that. And then some of the uh, um, uh, lifestyle changes, uh, losing weight, exercising, uh, remaining upright after meals, uh, eating better foods, things like that. And then some of the uh, uh, tradi uh, non-traditional um, medications or therapies like uh, uh, herbal supplements and things like that. Wonderful. So we'll be right back after this brief commercial break with Dr. Pora Shah. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy. Instacart is the national leader in the direct to home delivery service. With numerous major chains and food from smaller stores, you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash Instacart and maximize your nutrition today. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here. Many of you are returning to the gym now, but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com Rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. Okay, and we're back. The first piece of listener mail comes from Bob331982. 1982 was a good year, wasn't it, Dr. Shah? Absolutely. <laughs> Two years before I was born, though. <laughs> um, that, that's the year that I was born. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so Bob asks, uh, how do you start meditating? Um, so you have meditated before, you mentioned. You know, I, I am a present, everyday meditator. Um, how, when you were initially starting to meditate, how, how did you approach that? Yeah. So I think the first thing is to just get more information on it. And thankfully uh, uh, for us these days, there's plenty of information um, readily accessible on the internet. So um, I think that the, for anybody who's starting, the first thing to do is just Google, how do, how do I start meditating? And there's a lot of different resources for that. So, but in general, I think the, the thing, the most important thing is to just be in a quiet place and uh, just to close your eyes, not have any distractions around you and just let your thoughts flow and just, uh, I don't think meditation is to try to stop thoughts. I think it's to to uh, understand your thoughts or, or or just let your thoughts be. And you can think, oh, I have to do this thing and say, okay, I have this thing on my mind and then just let it go and let the next thought come in and let that go. So uh, that's kind of what I was taught in the beginning is to just kind of let you yourself feel your, th uh, uh, think your thoughts, feel your thoughts, and then just let them go. Uh, but I think there's a lot of resources online now uh, and a lot of, uh, thankfully, you know, um, recently, 
meditation has become quite popular in, in the Western world, and there are a lot of resources. Um, I, I have a Peloton bike, and there's Peloton meditation classes, which actually was one of the things that I wanted to start trying. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can find on YouTube and just Googling meditation. So thankfully, there's a lot of resources for that right now. Yeah, I think um, so. We had my sister on a few podcasts ago, who who's a uh, psychologist in Maryland, and and we're going to have uh, Chris Schroep on, who's a meditation expert soon. Um, but I think the key is just to start, like you mentioned. It, it's one of those things that's so easy to just kind of forget to do, but it really should take priority in your day. It's actually the first thing that I do when I wake up. I turn the coffee machine on and then I go and meditate for 20 minutes every single day. It's like an investment. It's like putting that money in your savings account for later. You're going to feel it during the course of your day, during that tense moment at work, or if you're in a fight with your spouse or something, it gives you these tools that you can deploy in those stressful situations to kind of calm the situation down. Um, And in our world, you know, it can get pretty hairy if somebody's hemorrhaging out and we're in the room and it's, you know, they're about to die or we're about to stop the bleeding. Doing some deep breathing is a really great way to just kind of tackle that problem head on. Um, like you mentioned, there are a lot of great resources. I've tried all of the apps. Um, Calm is is really good. And then Headspace is also, that's kind of where I started. And they actually have some introductory walkthroughs that will start you off. It's actually free right now for all healthcare providers um, during COVID, which I think is amazing that the company is doing that. We don't get money from them or anything, but I think that's great. And I use, um, Deepak Chopra's app just because there's something about his wisdom that starting off the day, listening to that man is amazing. So, um, so I would say just get started, make it a priority and use technology to your advantage, Bob. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think, I think um, one of the other things that sometimes, and, and this is not just with meditation, but everything that we do, sometimes we think we have to go from zero to a hundred immediately. But if you don't have 20 minutes, take one minute, take two minutes, you know, start with a couple minutes each day. And a lot of times making that a habit is more important than the length of time that you're doing it. If you do it every day for one minute, then you might say, okay, well now I have time to do two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes and start slowly so that you can make it a habit and then continue it from there. And then for something to be a habit, it takes, you need to at least do it 20 to 22 times, just so everybody knows. The next piece of listener mail is from Mandy Land 345. And uh, she asks, if you're going to drink, what are the safest types of alcohol? Dr. Shaw. Sure. So of course, you know, whenever you're drinking alcohol, you always want to be as safe as possible, make sure you're doing the right things, designated driver, that sort of thing as well. Um, but I think, um, you know, in general, limiting alcohol is always best. Um, uh, meaning that if you're going to drink, have a drink or two, not, not go too crazy. Um, I think red wines are oftentimes, um, uh, a good alcohol to go to. They have a lot of other antioxidant properties. Um, they taste good. Um, they're easy to drink. They're easy to find. Um, so that's usually my go-to if I'm trying to be healthier, uh, certainly, uh, clear liquors like vodka are probably a little bit lower in calorie and a little bit, um, better overall. I think beer is probably going to be the, you know, the highest carb content. I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels like the highest carb content certainly makes you feel more bloated and heavy um, just based on the drink itself. So I think uh, red wine is usually a good healthy-ish go-to for me. Yeah. I I don't really have anything else to add to that. That's a, that's really well put. Um, So uh, you know, 
2020 is coming to a close. Dr. Shaw, what are some things that you're looking most forward to as 2020 comes to a close yeah. and 2021 is opening up? Absolutely. I think just in general, I'm, I'm happy to see 2020 come to a close. <laughs> uh, it's been a, it's been a year. It's been a year for sure. So um, no, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to, I think, you know, anytime um, there's a new start to something, there's always a positivity, a hope that comes with that. So um, I just hope for all of us to be able to, to look forward to uh, a healthier, happier year. Um, you know, now with the, the COVID, um, uh, vaccines coming out. I think that's a positive sign. And, and hopefully that will allow us to kind of get back to a more normal life. Until then, I hope we're all safe wearing our masks, doing our distancing, certainly trying to keep in touch with family and friends to keep our spirits up and, and doing anything that we can to stay healthy. Uh, as always, our conversations are, are just really great. I, I love the depth at which we're able to just kind of dive right in. And I'm so glad that you're doing well. And I look forward to many more conversations on this podcast with you, Dr. Shaw. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. And I'm certainly happy to come back anytime. It's such a pleasure. So uh, until next time, Maximal Beings, this is Doc Mock. And I'm here with Dr. Porish Shah. And we are happy, uh, here to maximize your pathway to wellness. Next week on the Maximal Being Podcast. You have to toss back a couple beers. You have to drink a nice scotch or whiskey or, or a nice glass of wine. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're right. Like, whether we're happy, we're sad, we're angry, it doesn't matter. People are drinking left and right. They're coping with things with drinking. They're celebrating with drinking. But to be honest with you, I have not been drinking in 2020. Do us a favor, Maximal Beings, and leave us a comment or review. Hit the subscribe button and let your friends and family know so that we can get the word out. And until next time, this is Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness.